listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Mr. McKay, you were on the hot seat today. I like being on the hot seat. Although you're, you're, I think you record standing up, so maybe you can't be up. Can you be on the hot seat when you're standing up? Or is the hot seat metaphorical? Where's the hot seat come from? I'm on the hot feet. The hot feet. I'm the hot feet. All right, so I am interviewing you today on go-to-market strategies. So we're doing a go-to-market in five steps is the working title of this episode. What do we mean by that? In fact, real quick, I'm curious, is it go-to-market or is it go-to-market strategy? Is it the same thing? Does it matter? (laughs) Have you ever thought about becoming a professor? (laughs) My wife would love it if I would. I think you should become a professor. Go back to your alma mater. What's the name of that school you went to? Denison? No, the other one, the Ohio State University. (laughs) And by the way, I have to give a shout out that Ohio State did really well in the first round of the draft. Kudos to your alma mater. The Buckeyes have some good players, as usual. So back to -to go-to-market. What do we mean by it? I I guess define go-to-market for us before we jump into how how we do it. I want to make sure we're clear on what we mean by it. I want to juxtapose two definitions. Okay. I want to take the business book definition, and then I want to share the Jeff McKay definition. So the right one and the wrong one, or the wrong one and the right one? The pedantic one versus the reality one. How about that? Pedantic? Maybe you should go become a professor. Oh, that's a big word. I like that word. There is no way I could exist in academia. (laughs) No way. No way. Although it would be fun walking around campus and reading books and doing that stuff all the time. I love to teach, but that's not what academia is about anymore. But anyway, I digress. So let's talk about the business book definition. Okay. So go to market, I think from a business book perspective, is a plan the organization has to use their outside resources to deliver a value proposition to their customers and some way achieve competitive advantage, right? And it is the kind of summation of the tactics related to pricing and sales and channels and understanding the buyer's journey, developing new product launches, branding, those type of things is is how do you pull all those together? And that is what we will be talking about today in in many ways. But for me, I like to simplify it. And go-to-market strategy for me is about a firm defining its best self and the things that it must put in place, the building blocks, if you will, to show up as that best self in front of the right clients more and more often. So for me, in its simplest terms, go to strategy is knowing who your best self is and what it takes to have the people of your firm show up as them, their best selves in front of clients every day. I like that. When you use the phrase, their best selves, does that extend beyond the client-facing personnel? So I think what I like is you say the firm defining its best self, which means that the individuals that sell or the individuals that service the client often are supported by a network of people that don't necessarily face the client. So when the firm showing up as its best self requires 
those people to show up as their best selves as well. Absolutely. I, I don't think you can separate the two. Although I think firms often do separate those. I think they two. do. And I think they do that to their disadvantage because those support people, those non-line people are there to enable those delivery people to show up as their best selves. And firms that do not recognize that and make a bifurcation are doing themselves and their and their people a big disservice. I think too, as you talk about that, I would also encourage. I'm just I'm exploring here, but it seems like that that showing up in front of the client extends beyond a, a face-to-face interaction or a Zoom interaction. It extends into everything that touches that client. So the person that's managing the corporate social feed and the and the LinkedIn post that goes out is facing the client. So them showing up as their best self is critical to that client's journey. So probably you could make a pretty pretty sound argument that every single person in the organization is touching the client and facing the client every time. Even the IT person that's enabling the email infrastructure to, to perform at its highest, whatever else, you know, systems that, that clients interact with. You know, there's nothing worse than having a negative technology interaction with any company, right? It just completely shuts you down and creates incredible frustration for, for a customer. So they're critical to the, the firm showing up as its best self. I like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that definition. I mean, just think about the importance of a receptionist or administrative mm-hmm. assistant. They can interact with clients at really critical moments in the relationship. At the very beginning, right? When calling to meet somebody at the firm or when they're distressed and calling because they're mad or whatever the case may be. It's interesting you say that, you know, before we became a fully virtual agency, we had a physical office and we had a receptionist. And whenever anybody came to the office to meet with me, whether it was someone we were looking to hire, respect client, an existing client, didn't matter. After they left, that was always the thing I'd go, I'd go up at her and say, okay, well, what'd you think of that person? And it was always because I wanted to see how they treated her when they came in the door. They treated her with respect. That told me something about their character. And if they treated her rudely, then it told me something else about their character. And so I'd Make a mental note of that and say, okay, if we want to hire this person or not based on that interaction. And it's interesting how many, how many people don't think about that, like how you interact with that first point of contact. All right, let's, let's jump ahead. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? And then let's dig into the five steps and let's not lose time for the five steps. Yeah, I want to make two points. The first one is this is important because it's the key to success and so many firms don't focus on it. And if they do focus on it, they don't get it right. And the reason they don't get it right is not because they're not smart people, but because of the BS of PS, right? The innate qualities of a professional services firm that sand in the gears of the system that makes it so hard to make strategic choices and execute those choices get in the way of making smart decisions about how you're going to go to market. The BS of PS even rears its head in firms when trying to define what is our best selves, because there'll be difference of opinions around that as well. You know, if you think about, you know, that perception of self collectively, there's probably a, a normal distribution about the strength of that and the agreement with that. But understanding who you are and showing up 
like that more often is critical. And I don't think that happens by happenstance. You have to be conscious about it and you need to recognize what gets in the way of it and engineer that that BSPS out. Yeah, it reminds me of the conversation we had with Rita McGrath and the example that Ron shared about the client they were working with where they were trying to agree on what the goals were for an innovation initiative. And they said, oh, that'll be easy. And then two years later, whatever, <laughs> still like, oh, I still don't know. You know, so that's exactly what it comes to mind as you're talking about this. Just professional services firms are full of lots of humans and, and there's a lot of just noise in the in the system and it's hard to, hard to get to clarity. Yeah. So- the, the second reason this is important, as a firm, if we want to grow, to create opportunities for the people within the firm and create something of lasting value, a legacy brand, if you will, we need to build preference for our firm, for our brand. And listeners of this podcast have heard me say ad nauseum, and I will say ad infinitum, that there are three drivers of brand preference, expertise, results, and simpatico. Wait, no, 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 no. We agreed. We agreed. <laughs> you went off script. So, so for listeners, Jeff and I had a big discussion setting up this podcast of whether simpatico was going to stay simpatico. So it's staying simpatico. You, you call it an audible at the line. Let's go no, back no, to our football. Well, line. Well, we'll see. Jason doesn't like my use of the word of simpatico. <laughs> and actually, as we're kind of prepping, there's probably a better word. We'll get to it. I was excited. I was like, it's going to be the moment. big reveal. And then it did. And then it did. Oh, that effort happen. of going back and changing all these models. Um, <laughs> all right. So, sure. so you're, so you're so saying. The machine, if you will, the go to market machine, talking yeah. about all those attributes from that textbook definition of, of go to market need to be defined and aligned to build each one of those attributes that drives brand preference. So expertise, results, simpatico with a name to be named later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to build a preferred brand, the go to market strategy needs to be aligned to deliver on those three things. That's why it's important. Okay. And so let's dig in. So let's talk about the five steps and just kind of talk listeners through how to get where you want to go. Before we do that, actually, real quick, I want to just sort of nudge listeners to your homepage. So if you go to prudentpedal.com and get scroll down a little bit, there's a section that's marked how we do it. And that's a model that I, that Jeff's used to kind of describe go-to-market strategy. And I think it's worth sort of just looking at as a standalone model, it's hard to necessarily like interpret everything without someone walking you through it. But in a lot of ways, what just talking about is is that model. And so I think it's useful if you're at a computer to just look at it because I think it helps give you a visual reference to what, what he's talking about. So, all right, let's hit the five steps here. So step one, where, where do we start? So let me say this about the model. Essentially, it's this molecular looking thing, but it's a isosceles triangle. Okay. It's isosceles. Is that two equal lines or three equal sides? Oh, now I don't know. I should know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, the triangle <laughs> is made up of seven points, but those points interrelate to drive three different strategies that make up the go-to-market strategy in my mind. They are the marketing strategy, they are the sales strategy, and they are the delivery strategy. Yeah. 
And all three of those are inextricably linked because we're selling intangible solutions, knowledge-driven solutions, and the people selling them are the people delivering them, are the people that are developing the thought leadership and intellectual capital that we communicate to the market. So they're just all tied together. And anybody that's listening to this podcast, we always talk about opposite sides of the same coin and how these things all fit together and can never really be discussed as standalone because of that interrelatedness. That's really all I need to communicate about that model, but you'll hear me refer to some of the seven points on on that model as we go along talking about the go-to-market strategy. That was a good summary of it too, by the way. It helped me wrap my head around it. So, okay, but let's hit the first step. I almost revealed the step, my gosh. So, yeah, <laughs> sorry. This is not like some oh, big no. agency presentation where we have to build the anticipation and get Does anybody to... do those anymore? Is that still a thing? Oh, no, oh my gosh, yeah, I going. hate those things as a CMO. Like, bottom line it, give me your point of view and then let's go back and then you can explain it. Anyway, I digress. Step one. Step one. Keep us going. Step one. Step one and go to market strategy is you have to define your value proposition. And a value proposition is not an elevator pitch. I hate elevator pitches. I never tell clients to develop them because they don't work. I think they're navel gazing and they are lost on most potential clients because they're oversimplified. A value proposition to me is a deep understanding internally and collectively internally about the value you deliver to the market based on, and now we're getting into some of those points on the model that's on the website that are shaped by your core capabilities in every firm because they are in a certain industry, have a set of capabilities, but each firm will have a unique string within that industry's core capabilities and deeply understanding what it is that you do with those, those skills and understanding of the market that create value. Combined with, and I think this is what's really important, an understanding and clarity of the firm's purpose and its culture. So those are three interwoven things that firms need to reconcile and articulate in order to define their value proposition. So what's their purpose as a firm? What is their core capability that supports that purpose? And then what is the cultural DNA that binds those together and creates that definition of what your best self is? So step one, actually probably should have been defined your best self. Yeah, I like that. And so your best self is inclusive of your organizational purpose, why your firm exists in the first place, your core capabilities, which you would define not as services, but as capabilities, right? Or not as expertise, correct? Or are they one and the same in your mind? Say that one more time. Capabilities versus expertise. Are they the same or different? You know, I've never been asked that question. Mr. Malicki. Stumped you. Sorry. No, it's a, it's a great, that. it's a great question. And I just want to, I want to, I want to honor it and give it the thought that I think it requires. And again, I don't want to be 
pedantic about it, but I think it's it's interesting. I think well, they, I think they are a Venn diagram. Yeah. Right. Core capability, it to me, is inside the minds of the people and their ability to produce something. Expertise, I think, is the articulation of that core capability. I'm not, I think there might be a blog post in that. I'm going to have to think that one through. But to answer your question, they're essentially coming from the same place. Okay. <laughs> All right. so, sorry, no, I didn't mean to, 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 you know, that to take us backwards. Reminds me, that reminds me, before we started doing the podcast, the phone calls we used to have that was the impetus yeah. for this podcast, that would have been one of those things where we would have shot down a path and it come back from it two hours later, I think. Yeah, you're right. I, it's funny because as you were talking, I, it was clear in my mind and then it went unclear really quickly. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> no. As you, were, as you were talking about it, I was like, oh, wait, no, no, no. Anyway, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Well, let's not get too wrapped up in that right now because I don't think that that's going to help serve the purpose of today's episode. So, okay. So define the value proposition, define what your best self looks like, right? Yes. Is that the way you framed it? Yes. And that's a combination of your organizational purpose, your cultural DNA, and your core capabilities. All right. So, okay. Assuming you've been able to do that, you've, you've been able to get through the morose and, and get the clarity on those three things as an organization, what comes next? Define your ideal client. The ideal client in simple terms is a client who values the value you deliver and how you deliver it. And we've talked about ideal client a lot. Did we do a five steps on that? I don't know if we did. Yeah, I think we might have. Did we? Yeah. I can remember. So the ideal client to me is that client, that industry, that company size, that company's culture, that company's worldview, the situations that that client and its company finds itself allows you to unleash your best selves. So it's the environment that allows you to show up the way you want to show up. And when you show up as your best selves, I think that's when you deliver outsized value for a client. And that's when you begin to differentiate yourself. That's when you begin to, to enable premium pricing. It's when you solidify long-term client relationships, set the referral flywheel in action because your people enter an environment that allows them to get into flow. I like everything you said first. Let me just say that. What I liked particularly was a sequence in the middle where you talked about, you, you actually sort of effortlessly bounced back and forth between organizations and individuals without putting much thought into it. And what I like about that is that I've, if I reflect on ideal client conversations with clients, one of the things I've noticed is that they kind of fall in one of those two camps. If, if you ask them the question of what their ideal client looks like, they'll describe either an organization or a person, but rarely both. And I actually think it's the weird mashup of the two that's critical here. It's like, how do you figure out what the right client looks like from an organizational perspective and then an individual perspective? And the firms that actually know that marriage, which I've, in my experience, it's not most have a much better sense of the both themselves and the value they deliver and then th their clients and their needs. I love that. That was a really eloquent ex expression of that. So, And these first two steps, you know, knowing your best self 
and identifying the environments and firms where you show up as your best selves is really the key to driving Simpatico. And when we were, we, we were doing the prep, the word that came out of my mouth and the one that is going to supplant Simpatico in my model, because I think it speaks more clearly to what we're trying to achieve in these first two steps of the go-to-market strategy is harmony, that you are in harmony, you are in sync, your firm and the other firm, and not to get too new agey here, but you're gelling. And when you get clear about that, it makes everything that comes after a lot easier to define and execute against. If you can get these first two steps, you've eliminated so much, I think, of the BS of PS friction in your go-to-market strategy because you have clarity about who you are and whom you serve. So Wayne, I, lo I love Harmony. I love Harmony so much. Wayne, would you add like some fireworks sound effects to this sequence for me right here? <laughs> I can I can celebrate that Simpatico has become Harmony, and I, I be, I'm super happy now. Like I love Harmony, big fan. So yeah, um, this were a video podcast, I'd have one of those like confetti things like, coming out <laughs> on the screen. And I love the free, you know, real quick, the first two steps. The end of our last episode we did together, and behind the headlines, we end up with that phrase: "Know yourself, love your customers." Right? And like mm -hmm. that to me is like why these first two steps are perfect because it's like we got there inadvertently the other day, which tells me like. These are the per perfect first two steps. So, love it. Anyway, so, fireworks. Bam, 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 bam. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right, step three. So step three, knowing yourself and your core capabilities and showing up as your best self and the environments that you show up as your best self. The third step is to define the issues and the results that your firm is uniquely designed to deliver in those situations. And we go back to, to something that we talk about frequently on this podcast among the best thought leaders is they fall in love with the problem, not their solutions. And step three really speaks to what Fred Reichel talks about. And it's this perpetual pursuit of a deeper understanding of your clients, their problems, and how you can help them solve them. I, I like that you've married problems and solutions sort of and results all together into one kind of triple mashup. And I think in setup, you just described it as you wanting to own those things. And I think that's a great way to look at it. It's not just owning the issue, it's also owning a solution to the issue, you know, and if you think about your reference to Reichelt, it's a really great example, right? Like the issue, you know, that, that the issue changed over time, you know, it went from how do we measure loyalty to, you know, how do we you know, love our customers more, right? The issue's changing, but the pursuit never ends. It's how do we understand our customers better, right? How do we serve them better? How do we enable our most 
happy customers to come back for more and more and more and tell, and tell more people about us. So yeah, love step three. I, I love the way you married it together. And I think what's critical here, Jason, is we're thinking first about should be clients' results and issues maybe as I, th I think about it because the clients are trying to achieve something, some outcome. But something stands in the, way in the way of that outcome. And it can be any number of things. And the best firms always think in terms of what is the client trying to achieve but not able to achieve? And then begin thinking about what stands in the way. Yeah. And that becomes, I think, the heart, if you will, of an intellectual capital agenda the thought leadership strategies who are saying, hey, we want to produce these types of results, whether that's growth or efficiency or risk mitigation or you know customer experience or whatever. But there are these specific buckets of business value that exist and then subcategories of those that our core capabilities are uniquely designed to address. So in this stage, we're not necessarily focused on defining the solutions, uh -huh. but a deeper understanding of what's getting in the way of the potential results we want. The solution will be the logical fallout from a deeper understanding of that. I think you unlock something really powerful here. The firm needs to be focused on the issues that they that clients that they, that they would like to own in their clients' lives and organizations and the desired results that those clients would like to achieve, the solutions are transient. And I think that's the essence of this. It's that, you know, when you're dialed in on the, on, on the client at the greatest level, it's all about how do you help them overcome the challenges that are, that are in the way of getting them the results they want and the solutions, they're going to change year to year, quarter to quarter, client to client. And, and, and biggest problem firms have is they fixate on solutions in their marketing efforts and maybe other efforts as well. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to step four. I don't want to run out of time to hit the last two steps, but you, you know, really good stuff. So keep going. So the fourth step is develop your point of view on those issues and a point of view. We just did an episode on this and we've talked about it multiple times, but this is critical to differentiating the firm and breaking through the noise in the go-to-market strategy. Nobody is going to listen to you unless you're bringing something to the table. And the point of view should be an extension of complement your best selves. And that point of view is going to resonate with your ideal client. So it should be in harmony. So now we're beginning to manifest, if you will, that those kind of internal expertise, core capabilities, purpose in a way that is expressed, you know, in conversations, in marketing communications, in sales interactions, in any number of ways. But brand study after brand study and marketing research study after marketing research, buyers look to professional services firms for a clear opinion on issues because buyers are smart enough to know that, that professional services firms work with a variety of companies and people want the wisdom of that experience 
coming back to them. So firms have to have a very clear point of view on those issues. So this looks something like ideal client type of company is trying to achieve said result, but they can't achieve that result because of issues one, two, and three. Our point of view, we believe that the way to overcome those issues is one, two, three. So it's a very simple formula to that firms can use to shape the thinking around the issues, ground the issues, and then say, based on our core capability, our wisdom, our experience, the results we've delivered, here's how you overcome those issues. And the point of view should be consistent and clear and confident in taking on those issues in order to enable clients to overcome those issues. I agree with everything you said. I think it was all really, really good. The only caveat I would suggest in there is, and I don't think you had it said it directly, but I think you probably implied it, is that I do think that that point of view is often grounded in or substantiated through research, at least the best ones that are most powerful. So I think you use the phrase opinion, which I think is a little weak in the sense of like it implies that well, we have an opinion on how this is done. I think it's more like you, like you said, the collective wisdom of their client experience paired with in-depth research. And as we've heard from like people like Matthew Dixon or even you know Fred Reichelt's original work around that promoter score was a very research-driven thing. And so I think a lot of times I don't want to lose sight of that fact that like that I do think that point of view needs to you know I shouldn't say needs to, but frequently is grounded in some research base that's broader than like just the wisdom of the firm and its people. But it doesn't have to be. I'm not saying it has to be. I just think frequently it, the best ones seem to be. I agree with that. I think that strengthens that point of view. It validates yeah. that that validates point it. of view. Yes. Yeah. It's, I agree it's with this, that. It's this beautiful marriage. To me, it's the beautiful marriage of when you've got like a foundation of research that says, yeah, we found that the best companies do this. Oh, and here's specific concrete examples. And our client experience, when you pair those together, it's almost like an unassailable argument. It's like, well, why would I not do this? And why would I not hire you to do it? Okay, step five. So so step five is, I, I was just going to say it's the easiest step, but sometimes it's not the easiest step. But to <laughs> me, it's the easiest step. Step five is the logical formulation of our solution set and our service delivery, given the four steps that came before, right? Here's our value proposition. Here's where we show up as our best selves. Here is our expertise and core capability and purpose as an organization. Here is the client who values that value and where we show up as our best self. And we have a deep and growing understanding of the results they're trying to achieve and the issues that stand in their way, we have a point of view on those issues and how you overcome them to deliver the results. Therefore, we've built our solutions in a way that attacks those issues and produces those results in the most efficient and effective way so that those solutions take into context each one of those dimensions that comes before 
where it's just like, well, of course you built your solution that way. I understand why you do it this way. That's a, the perfect solution. And this, to me, I think Blair Ends articulates this better than anyone else, that you're having this conversation and, and the challenger sale as well. The solution is just a natural result. <laughs> it's, yeah. and, and it's self-evident to your ideal client that, of course, that's the right solution and you're the right firm to deliver it. And what firms need to do is just keep it simple and not come up with a long list of things that they hope they could throw against the wall and have it stick. Yeah, I like that last part a lot. You know, it's funny as you were talking, and this is an oversimplification given the model, the go-to-market model you have. But one of the things I've noticed through the years is this sort of like pretty like big mismatch between marketing and sales, like in the terms of, I mean, in the realm of thought leadership. So a lot of times you'll find a firm and they, and they present a really compelling or a pretty compelling point of view on something. And it's really interesting. And then when you jump from that like intellectual experience of, oh, that's how we should solve it to the solutions that would basically be designed to solve it, it's like all of a sudden you've jumped it off a bridge or something. There's like no connectivity back to what you just learned. And I think it's a huge miss. And we've talked about this a lot in our, Bob Bade and I have in our conference over the year is this notion of thought leadership selling. And it's sort of like, a, but to me, it's really what you're talking about is how do you get the solution to be a natural fallout or connection to the issues that you chose to own your unique point of view on those issues so that when the client shows up and says, oh, that's exact, that makes total sense. That's exactly what I would expect and what I'm looking for. Um, so Jason, I don't think it happens that often. Well, do you know why? You're going to say the BS of PS, I'm sure. Well, that, that may be, but let's bring this conversation full circle. Yeah. And why go to market strategy is so important. And these five steps are the essential steps is that, and I don't have research to back this up. All we have is, is, is anecdotal. Collective wisdom. Yes. Is that nine out of 10 firms take these five steps and execute them in reverse. Mm -hmm. They start with solutions and that's where they go wrong. And it's why they're not successful. It's why they're not living up to their potential. It's why their brands are not differentiated is they start with their own solution they become hammers looking for nails and they take any client that's willing to pay them in order to drive that nail in instead of saying, you know, who we are, this is our best selves, this is where we show up as our best selves, here is the value, the results we deliver for our clients, our point of view on how you get to those results and a logical extension of the solutions to deliver those. That most firms go ass backwards, as they say. It's funny because as you were talking, I actually think it's sometimes even worse than that. We've done, as you know, a fair amount of work in the architecture engineering community over the years. And what I've noticed in that community is that they actually don't even start solution first. They start project. So they start with, here's all the projects we've done in the past, irregardless of the solutions that were, you know, what was brought to bear to bring that project to life. How do we get more projects like that? So basically they're skipping to like a, a step six that doesn't exist. And that's where the marketing model starts. And you can see it when you hit websites because they're like no wrap. There's no umbrella that explains what the firm's about and why they're there and what they're trying to do that feels coherent or strong or, or well-crafted. And you've sort of like, I guess in some ways, 
gave me some clarity as to why I kept running into that through the years. I go to these sites and I, we get a call and I go to the site and I'm like, what, what are they trying to do? I can make no sense oh, of it oh, all yeah. whatsoever. And then just seeing some projects. I'm like, okay, that's a nice, I don't know, airport, whatever. So it's just interesting. All right. We, we ran longer than we usually do, but I, I think it was a really good episode. So I'm glad we went deep because I do think that we got to some really great thinking here. So before we wrap, just from your experience, having helped clients navigate through this and build a go-to-market model, I mean, you said, you said the number one place they go wrong is they start with solutions, but, but where do they struggle? Like, where are they struggling kind of working through this the most? And then we can close it down for the week. Hey, each firm is, is unique and they struggle in different ways at, at each stage. I think it's step one. Most firms know who they are, or at least try to articulate values, and they can struggle if they supplant real cultural DNA with, you know, value posters. So that would be one. Differentiate between, you know, who you really are and who you say you are. Get clear on that and get those in alignment. Two, they struggle with choosing an ideal client because... They fear the opportunity cost of making a strategic choice to pursue one type of client and not another. And oftentimes they think too narrowly about that strategic choice, either in terms of size or industry, when they should be thinking of those ideal clients in terms of mindset and harmony. They struggle with making strategic choices around what issues they want to overcome given steps one and two. Yeah. When it, when it starts to operationalize around marketing, I think they really struggle with articulating a point of view that they don't have one or they don't take the time to think it through. But every firm has a strong point of view. They just don't understand what it is. And I, I think I spend more of my time bringing that out. And it's painful. Each one of these decisions is hard because they're strategic decisions and they need to be beaten up and talked about and fought for and collaborated around. And some firms don't want to take the time to do that, but the best firms do. And then the, and then the last thing I think they struggle is they jump into solutions. They formulate solutions. And we've talked about this time and time again, that they think because they have one successful client engagement that they somehow have a solution in a line of business and they don't manage that solution set well. And we've talked a lot about the performance envelope, that it's constantly moving. And you, you said it well in this, in this episode, that that is constantly changing the solutions to the issues evolve because technology and understanding changes. And you don't want to build around solutions because they're here one day and gone the next. It's kind of like going back to our behind the headlines one. If you you build an agency fully predicated on SEO, you might be scratching your head right now going, okay, this whole world is getting exploded and it's going to change radically. and, And what your core solution now is under sort of like duress and you have to rethink the way that solution is going to be delivered. Now, that would be the case no matter what, but if you've positioned the whole business around that versus positioning around a broader issue, you're in trouble. So anyway, random comment. 
All right. Well, let's wrap up. This was great. I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's a really useful episode. Thanks for taking us into the DNA model. And thanks for giving us a new word for simpatico. So I don't have to say simpatico again. I can say harmony, which I'm very happy about. That made, made my day. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.